You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You've got your popcorn. The theater darkens. Orchestral music blares. And text crawls up the screen. And crawls. And crawls. Then we meet some characters who don't ultimately matter. We get some jokes where jokes have no business being, there's a ton of unnecessary backstory, and it all moves at a glacial pace. This is George Lucas's cut of Star Wars. Yet the film won an Oscar. For editing. For Marsha Lucas. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Name the earliest science fiction author you can. Isaac Asimov, born in 1920. Hugo Gernsback, solid reference, he was born in 1884. Jules Verne, an excellent guess, born in 1828. But we're still not at the origins of sci-fi yet. Like all the best podcast topics, this one originated with a meme, which you'll find linked in the show notes that says, just remember, there is no such thing as a fake geek girl. There are only fake geek boys. Science fiction was invented by a woman. And then, of course, some mansplaining happens, and some beatdowns follow that. Many people would say, and rightly so, that sci-fi has many fathers, but only one mother. The young woman credited with creating the genre, Mary Shelley. Born to a renowned feminist writer and philosopher in 1797, Mary was 16 when she fell in love with the poet Percy Shelley, and the two ran away together to become the power couple of the literary romantic movement. One summer at friend Lord Byron's villa in Switzerland, the three of them spent long nights debating everything from art to politics to galvanism, also known as raising bodies from the dead using electricity. On one eerie night, Byron challenged everyone to write a ghost story. Mary crafted a story in which the fantastic could happen within the realm of the possible. The book contains rather little in the way of actual science, but it masterfully explores the social and moral repercussions of what might happen if certain scientific advances were possible. If you've only seen Frankenstein movies, You've been robbed of some of the best aspects of the story. The closest I've seen in popular retellings was probably Penny Dreadful, and to say close is to really give them a lot of credit. It also bears noting that Mary Shelley created an entire new literary genre when she was 19 years old. I would definitely not want anyone reading the things that I wrote at 19. Or 22, 25... Frankenstein was published anonymously in 1818 with a preface by Percy Shelley, causing many to assume that he was the author, since writing books wasn't a proper undertaking for a woman. Following bestseller status and a successful screen adaptation, 
Mary set the record straight with the second edition in 1822, finally taking credit for her masterpiece. Sadly, that was also the year that she lost Percy in a shipwreck, leaving her a 24-year-old widow. In a strange twist that would, hopefully, only happen among romantics, Mary had to fight Byron over which of them got to keep Percy's preserved heart, giving him Percy's skull as a sort of consolation prize. Surprisingly, you can make a strong case that even Mary Shelley wasn't the first sci-fi author. To talk about her, we need to move farther away from the time of the American Civil War and closer to the time of the English Civil War. Presenting Margaret Lucas Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, born 1623. One of the first women to write using her own name, including 20 volumes of plays, poems, essays, and satires. The only woman to publish her own natural philosophy, which is what they called science, in the 17th century, and the first woman to be invited to visit the newly formed Royal Society. With no education after childhood tutoring, and denied a career because of her matching chromosomes, Cavendish wrote as she pleased, exploring ideas like atomism, materialism, and animal rights, mixed in with discussions of gender and etiquette. In exile in France, the wealthy Cavendishes were both patrons and practitioners of science, and it was through their connections that Margaret was exposed to scientific debate. She and her husband William held salons in Paris that included such great minds as Hobbes and Descartes. In the 1650s, Cavendish was developing her scientific mind and published a number of short books. After the restoration of the Stuarts to the throne and the Cavendishes to Newcastle-upon-Tyne, she worked to refine her ideas, publishing the impressive-sounding Philosophical and Physical Opinions, Philosophical Letters, and Observations on Experimental Philosophy, all in the span of three years. Now, before we get too terribly excited, let me asterisk all of this by saying she wasn't a fan of this new science, believing that knowledge gained by experimental methods wasn't reliable inherently and would always be tainted by the self-interest of the observer, not just in cases of badly organized experiments perfuse with confirmation bias. Man cannot know the truth of those infinite parts, she said, being but a finite part itself. Cavendish tried to join the Royal Society of London for improving natural knowledge, or Royal Society to its friends. They said no. Repeatedly. She may have authored science books, but she was still a woman. She would be invited to visit the society and witness its experiments, and her appearance, the first of any woman there, became a bigger attraction than the experiments themselves. That may have had something to do with her reputation for eccentricity, what in us working-class people is called being a freaking weirdo. In evidence of this, I offer the time she attended a play written by her husband, wearing an outfit of her own design based on ancient Cretan costumes which left the breasts bare, and other such behavior that earned her the nickname Mad Madge. But now we're up to 1666, the year of the Great Fire of London, and the most relevant bullet point in Cavendish's CV, The Blazing World. No, I don't know when it came out relative to the fire, but the fire was in September, so I'd say it was probably BF 
before fire. The Blazing World is considered by some to be the world's first science fiction novel, 152 years before Frankenstein. The main character, a young woman, is kidnapped by an amorous foreign merchant and taken to sea, but a storm forces the ship toward the North Pole and into a parallel new world. While all the men aboard the boat freeze to death, the young woman survives and meets remarkable species of hybrid animals, bear men, fox men, ape men, and so on, which she organizes into and leads in scientific societies. If you choose, you may picture it as 1996's The Island of Dr. Moreau, starring the girl from The Golden Compass, aged up slightly. And now that I've said that, you will. Like the clergy in Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, members of the Royal Society populate the novel. And Cavendish might as well include them. She included herself. Guess who she was, and the second two guesses don't count. Did I mention the main character becomes the Empress? We should stop calling author self-insert characters Mary Sue and instead call them Margaret Lucas. As refreshing as it's been to get out of the old boys' club, there was a conspicuous similarity to the people included in the various lists and research sources I used today. The lack of sci-fi authors of color, which is an especially egregious oversight considering female authors of color swept the Hugo Awards in 2016. Names like Susan Power, Sabrina Vovrele, Dana Chaviano, Sophia Samatar, and of course, Octavia Estelle Butler. Butler was born in 1947 to a housekeeper mother and a shoeshiner father who died when she was seven. Butler's mother raised her with the help of her own mother in a strict Baptist household. Because Butler's mother had received very little formal education herself, she made sure to give her daughter the opportunity she'd been denied by bringing home books and magazines that her white employers threw away. Though Butler's mother bought her a typewriter, it was in hope that Butler would grow up to work as a secretary. Neither mother nor grandmother encouraged her burgeoning love of writing. In their minds, and in the minds of many people of that era, women and people of color could not be professional writers. Sitting in front of the low-budget movie Devil Girl from Mars, 12-year-old Butler said to herself, Somebody got paid for writing this story. I can write a better story than that. Butler began reading science fiction at a young age. She soon found the genre's unimaginative portrayal of ethnicity and class, as well as its lack of female protagonists, disappointing. A shy only child, awkwardly tall and a target for bullies, Butler found solace reading at the library and in writing. An avid reader, Butler prevailed in her education, graduating from Pasadena City College in 1968, her college years coming during the rising black power movement. Listening to her classmates criticize the, quote, subservience of previous generations of blacks to whites, Butler thought of her housekeeper mother and felt empathy for those forebearers rather than judgment. A major through-line of much of Butler's work as a whole is the struggle of people of different lifestyles to coexist when one lifestyle has been labeled subversive, transgressive, or simply wrong. Butler would later claim to have three loyal audiences across varied ethnic and cultural backgrounds, people of color, fans of science fiction, and feminists. While participating in a local writer's workshop, Butler was encouraged to attend the Screenwriters Guild Open Door program, 
There, she found a mentor in celebrated science fiction author Harlan Ellison, who was impressed by her writing. He urged her to attend the six-week Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop in Pennsylvania. And soon thereafter, Butler sold her first stories. Crossover was published in the 1971 Clarion Anthology, and Childfinder was purchased by Ellison for an anthology that was sadly never published. For the next five years, Butler worked on the novels that would become known as the Patternist series. The series explored themes of what it means to be human, racial and gender-based animosity, the ethical implications of biological engineering, and how power changes people through a secret history spanning from ancient Egypt to the far future, involving an alien pandemic and telepathic mind control. In 1978, a scant seven years after selling her first story, Butler was able to stop working her menial jobs and support herself as a writer. The next year, she published Kindred, which told the story of a black woman transported from 1976 to 1815, where she is assumed to be an escaped slave and treated accordingly. While many are quick to categorize the book as science fiction because it involves time travel, Butler herself pointed out that the science of time travel is effectively ignored. While Butler enjoyed science fiction as both a reader and a writer, calling it potentially the freest genre in existence, she resisted the label of genre writer. Many called her work literary science fiction or speculative fiction, a more nebulously defined genre that deals with the future without focusing on technology. That being said, Butler experimented with alien contact, gene manipulation, contamination, hybridity, and non-consensual mating to shape characters built by sociobiological violence. The futuristic communities she created drew on African culture and the black experience in the diaspora of America. That is why she is called the Queen of Afrofuturism. The term Afrofuturism generally refers to literature, music, movies, and visual arts that explore the African-American experience through science fiction, how the culture intersects with technology and futurism. Coined by science fiction writer Samuel R. Delaney in a 1995 interview, the purpose of the term is to set apart speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century techno-culture, and more generally, African-American signification that appropriates images of technology and a prosthetically enhanced future. African-American voices have other stories to tell about culture, technology, and things to come. Marvel's Black Panther, the works of artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, Missy Elliott's best music videos, authors like River Solomon, the works of Janelle Monet, even the musical The Wiz stand as examples of Afrofuturism. Octavia Butler died suddenly outside her home of a possible stroke and a fall in 2006 at age 58. However, the themes of her work, humanity's natural tendency toward oppression, overcoming disenfranchisement, embracing change to survive, are timeless. Simple peck-order bullying, Butler wrote in the essay A World Without Racism, is only the beginning of the kind of hierarchical behavior 
that can lead to racism, sexism, ethnocentrism, classism, and all the other isms that cause so much suffering in the world. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Though we've already hopefully disproven it, Conventional wisdom, in giant air quotes, holds that science fiction was written almost exclusively by men until the advent of feminism in the 1960s and 70s. You can prove that this wasn't the case if you go through old sci-fi story magazines, as Georgia Tech professor Lisa Yazik did. What does she teach? Science fiction studies. Why was I not told this was an option? So if Professor Yazek says that women have always been a part of sci-fi, you can probably take that to the bank. I was so surprised to see how many women there were in science fiction before women really came into the genre in the 1970s with feminist science fiction. She said on the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, I kept uncovering these anthologies with all of these women who were clearly well-known and celebrated in their day and who I had never heard of. Not only were female authors fairly common, at least 15% of authors, female readership was even higher, usually more than 40%. Um, actually, Moxie, it just looks like there weren't any female authors because they wrote under male pseudonyms. Well, aren't you the clever little sausage? But if you're going to correct people, you better make sure you're correct. According to Yazik, that's mostly a myth. There's one notable exception we'll talk about later. Women did write under male names, but so did the males write under female pseudonyms. Lots of authors use pseudonyms for various reasons. You couldn't swing a dead alien cat creature without hitting a pen name. 
So why do we have this distorted view of the gender dynamics of sci-fi authors? Yazik says that the first science fiction anthologies were published during a backlash against first-wave feminism, and that the male editors, such as John W. Campbell and Groff Conklin, specifically excluded women from their lineup. With attitudes like that running the joint, it's no wonder we got feminist sci-fi. Feminist science fiction focuses on themes like gender inequality, sexuality, race, economics, or reproduction, whatever aspect of the dominant culture needs examining and or tearing down. Some authors use utopias to explore a society in which gender differences or gender power imbalances don't exist, while others use dystopias to explore worlds where gender inequalities are intensified. Need an example? The Handmaid's Tale. That's the obvious one. But for feminist sci-fi that hasn't been optioned by a premium streaming service, check out Joanna Russ and the Galactic Suburbia. Have you ever noticed how, no matter how advanced the technological backdrop of the story is, the society is still roughly the same as ours in many stories? The characters may be living in cloud cities with robot butlers and interstellar travel, but with their hetero spouse, pet dog, and 2.3 kids. This struck Russ as odd, since in all of human history, when science and technology change, society changes. Joanna Russ was born to a pair of teachers in the Bronx in 1937. In her youth, she filled countless notebooks with stories, poems, comics, and illustrations, often sewing loose pages together into her own hand-bound books. Russ entered college at age 15 and sold her first story at 22. Her work was experimental, strange, and unabashedly feminist, exuding her belief that the sci-fi genre was ideal for expressing radical thought. Russ was one of the most outspoken female authors to challenge male dominance of the field, and is generally regarded as one of the, if not the, leading feminist sci-fi author. Russ's most often cited book is The Female Man, from 1975, which features four women in different parallel universes who visit each other's realities and compare and contrast the lives and treatment of women. Russ further helped to shape the field through her essays and criticism. Science fiction, Russ felt, gives something to its readers they can't easily get from other genres. But the science should be accurate, and that seriousness is a virtue. Despite that latter point, she was also one of the first science fiction writers to take slash fiction seriously, much to the mix of relief and embarrassed chagrin of us semi-recovered fanfiction authors. For those who don't know, you know, if you had friends or a social life during high school, slash fiction is fanfiction that pairs up same-sex characters, and it actually dates all the way back to Star Trek The Original Series with Kirk and Spock. Pawn Far is basically a slash writer's dream. Russ's most significant nonfiction was her 1983 book, How to Suppress Women's Writing, outlining the dozen or so different methods commonly employed to ignore, condemn, or belittle the work of female authors. Repressing female writing doesn't require anything as dramatic as forbidding females from learning to read and write. 
it can be done after the fact, quietly and with the wave of a dismissive hand. Russ gets her point across right on the cover. You don't even have to open the book, though you absolutely should. Rather than any sort of graphic or picture, the cover is just text, reading, she didn't write it. Well, she wrote it, but she shouldn't have. She wrote it, but look what she wrote about. She wrote it, but she only wrote one of it. She wrote it, but she isn't really an artist, and it isn't really art. She wrote it, but she had help. She wrote it, but she's an anomaly. She wrote it, but... Wow. Makes me want to write a second book just on general principle. I am still waiting, by the way, on distribution details for the Your Brain on Facts audiobook, but in the meantime, there is always the print version at yourbrainonfacts.com book. Before you think Russ was some beastly man-hater dumping on the works of male authors, her feminine contemporaries weren't safe from her either, including Ursula K. Le Guin, one of the most awarded sci-fi authors ever, and her double Hugo-winning The Left Hand of Darkness. To say Le Guin is a legend in the genre is to damn with faint praise. She was literally recognized by the Library of Congress as a living legend. She also received, among many awards, the short-lived World Science Fiction Society Award called the Gandalf Grandmaster. Best known for her Earthsea series, Le Guin spent, or wasted, years trying to get the attention of mainstream fiction, though the sci-fi fantasy world embraced her almost immediately. Born in California in 1929, Ursula was the only daughter of an anthropologist father and writer mother, a writer who chronicled the story of Ishii, the last of the Yahi. If you want to learn more about Ishii, and you definitely should, but you're pressed for time, you can always check out the movie The Last of His Tribe, starring my favorite underappreciated actor, Graham Greene. Don't believe the cover art giving John Voight top billing. Anyway, Le Guin was raised in a household that encouraged the exploration of art, culture, and ideas. The Left Hand of Darkness, part of what's called the Hainish Cycle, after the planet on which it takes place, details an alien race who only exhibit blatant gender characteristics when it's time to mate. It's won both Hugo and Nebula Awards, and was accused by Russ of reinforcing gender stereotypes. Have you read it? Are you with Russ, or was she way off base? You can let me know on the social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram.com slash YourBrainOnFacts and Twitter at BrainOnFactsPod, or help me start a conversation in our social groups, which you can reach at YourBrainOnFacts.com slash social. We have both the Facebook Brainiacs Breakroom and the YourBrainOnFacts subreddit. You should also hop in there if you have a strong opinion about which is the better student wizard story, Harry Potter or A Wizard of Earthsea. And then we can debate why there isn't an Earthsea extension to any theme parks when Earthsea books have sold millions of copies worldwide. Maybe the emotional depth the series has been praised for makes it less marketable. Like Le Guin's experience, Breaking into mainstream publishing also proved difficult for Alice Bradley Sheldon, but she came at the problem side on. Like many female writers before and since, she took up a male pen name, James Tiptee Jr. What's unusual in this case was that most people assumed it was a pen name because of the author's actual job, 
working for the CIA. The readers never imagined that that CIA spy was a woman. That revelation in 1977 left a lot of cognitive dissonance in its wake. Alice Sheldon, born in 1915, had quite the CV, from chicken farming to army intelligence during World War II, where she became an expert in reading aerial photographs. She went to college at age 40 and earned a PhD in experimental psychology. Then she started writing science fiction. Her first story was published in 1968 under the name James Tiptree, which, by the by, was inspired by a brand of jam. Sheldon chose a male name not only for the enhanced marketability, let's be honest, but because I've had too many experiences in my life of being the first woman in some damn occupation. Tiptree wasn't Sheldon's first or only pen name either. She also wrote under the adorably dubious name Rakuna Sheldon. In fact, the two alternate identities not only coexisted but cooperated. As Tiptree built up clout in the literary world, he wrote to editors recommending Rakuna to them. Tiptree has been likened to Ernest Hemingway, but the themes they use were distinctly un-Hemingway-esque. The Hugo Nebula Jupiter Award-winning novella *Houston, Houston, Do You Read*, for example, sees an astronaut crew blown off course by solar flares to be rescued by another ship. Whose crew they slowly realize is almost all female. In fact, there's only one male crew member. The astronauts eventually learn that they are in fact in the future, and in the three centuries they missed, all the men on Earth had slowly died out. I don't think Papa would have written about that. Why were Tiptree's books so convincingly, obviously male? She herself explained it thus. Men have so preempted the area of human experience that when you write about universal motives, you are assumed to be writing like a man. Scholar Kim Kirkpatrick reads Tiptree's work as a public discourse on gender and sex within American society, and a specific discussion about Sheldon functioning as a woman in a male-dominated world. Kirkpatrick pays particular attention to the story "The Women Men Don't See." In which the male narrator thinks a mother and daughter going off with aliens are literally crazy for leaving Earth, and he can't understand why they don't want to be rescued by him either. Men may dominate the story, Kirkpatrick says, but to understand the story, follow the women. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Marsha was the only Lucas to bring home an Oscar for Star Wars. Along with her fellow editors Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu, Marcia was an accomplished film editor in her own right before George ever came along, working under the likes of Martin Scorsese. She rearranged the scenes to create tension where it was needed, trimmed redundant exposition, and gave the audience the right amount of information at the right time. It was even her idea for Obi Wan Kenobi to die. She's inarguably a big chunk of the reason that the movie spawned a media empire. So why isn't her name as well known a part of Star Wars as, say, John Williams? There is conjecture that after their divorce in 1983, George Lucas actively worked to suppress her contributions. For example, he put scenes back in that she had taken out, like the scene with Han and Jabba at Mos Eisley, 
which is one more reason to hate that scene and that whole recut of the film. Remember, you could always find the script and the source material at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.